All right, so there are two main ideas that I think uh, uh, are really clear in these 14 chapters that we're going to be dealing with. Um, two main ideas. And, and, here's the th- and it's really, really simple. It's not complicated. Um, the, first, the first is found in 13 through 24. And the, the main message of those chapters is that God opposes the pride of the world. Um, we've talked about this. We see this in Isaiah all the time, that pride is the, is the very thing that just, just infuriates God. God doesn't want proud people. Um, and and what's, what's happening in these chapters is that God is addressing, in particular, a number of nations, the, the primary nations of the world of that day that, they, that was known to the Israelites of that day. Um, so there's a number of nations, a number of cities that are called out specifically, but the main idea is that God is opposing their pride and he's going to, he's saying to them, he's ultimately going to bring about his judgment. But with, with all things in the scriptures, this is what's really amazing. When you start to read the Old Testament, we, have, we can get the mindset that the Old Testament is fire and brimstone and you got kind of a, a mean, angry God who just wants to hurt everybody. And then you get to the New Testament and he suddenly becomes a really nice, happy God. Um, that's not accurate in any way. Um, there, there is always, Old and New Testament, there is always judgment, there is always grace. There's always these things that go hand in hand. And so we're going to see that really clearly in Isaiah, uh, particularly in the later chapters um, as we, in 25, 26, and 27. It's very clear. I hope to make that clear to you. Um, but, but when we are proud and refusing to repent of our sins and living in this rejecting mode uh, towards the Lord, then yeah, judgment is, uh, is a part of that package deal. Like rejection and, and pride of the Lord towards the Lord is, is going to lead to judgment. And that's true in the New Testament as well. Um, the New Testament makes that very clear. In fact, Jesus talks more about hell than anybody anywhere in the, in the Bible. Um, he teaches more about it than anyone else. There, so we have this really weird backwards idea that Old Testament God is mean, New Testament God and Jesus is nice. Um, they're both the same. They're, it's one God throughout all of this. And so there's always a judgment to those who, those who refuse to repent and live in pride, but there is grace to the humble. This is what the Bible says, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's the point we're going to see. So we're going to see God's opposition to the pride of the world, and then we're going to see God's grace through the redemption he offers us in Jesus. Those are the two main points. So let's first get to the highlights of uh, the first, on the first point there, that God opposes and judges the pride of the world. There's two passages I want to take us to that I think highlight this. Rather than looking at all of these verses in all of these, you know, nine or ten chapters, um, we're just going to take two main passages. First is 13 verse 11. And here's what it says. I think this is a really good summary statement of the situation. It says, I will punish the world for its evil. This is the Lord speaking. And the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant 
and lay low, low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So that one verse, I think, brings this whole point to, to bear. It's that God opposes this pride and he's going to deal with it. He's going to bring about judgment and justice. And we need to recognize that there is, uh, there is justice in the world and there should be justice in the world. We don't want to live in a world where, where wrongdoing just completely goes undealt with. And so the Lord is going to deal with that. And that's one of the things. And now he's speaking in, in chapter 13, he's speaking to Babylon. And Babylon was at the time of Isaiah, the, the powerhouse, um, the superpower of its day. And, and so they sort of, Babylon kind of becomes this prototype for all the nations of the world that are hostile to the Lord. Um, the, Babylon is used as a symbol of hostility and pride. And we actually see that as we get into chapter 14. So here's a little bit more for you. 14, 12 through 21. Um, a little bit more of a chunk there. But this, this really lays out, um, again, talking about Babylon, specifically the king of Babylon, and what's going to happen to him and how ultimately after he experiences God's judgment, uh, he's going to be taunted. And so here's, look at verse 12. And it says this, How... Are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, who, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers nevermore be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Now, um, some of you may know this, or some of you may not, but this, this passage is, is the primary passage in the Old Testament where people uh, will go to talk about the fall of Satan from heaven. And we can see why that is, right? Um, there's, there's a lot of symbolism in this about um, being fallen from heaven, referred to the day star, um, cut down, all these things, right? And, and then this pride that's expressed of wanting to ascend to heaven above the stars of God and this attitude of pride that says, I'm going to set my throne on high, verse 13. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds, right? This, there's a pride in this saying, I'm going to be better than God, higher than God, more important than God. Now, here's the, pro- here's the issue. And, and I don't really know for sure... Um, how this relates to the fall of Satan or not. I know for sure in the context, it's talking about the, the king of Babylon. However, it, 
it could very well be, a, again, a prototypical kind of a, a um, that the, the king of Babylon resembles the satanic fall to such a degree that this could refer to both. And it may refer to both. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, what's being expressed here is this, that, that this pride, this arrogance of believing that we can set ourselves above God will ultimately cut us down, bring us down to the lowest depths, that God has no rivals. And he doesn't stand here as the sovereign Lord sharing power. He is the sovereign Lord. He is in control. He is the one who has the authority of of the whole universe. And so he's not going to let anyone, any created thing, whether that be the devil or that be the kings of the earth, he's not going to let any of them stand uh, while they say in their heart that they can be like him. And so we're seeing this this idea floated out here that there is pride in the human heart, particularly in the nations of power, and God's going to take care of that and bring justice. So from there, uh, we're seeing the rest of this section from 13 to 24. God is basically just doing this over and over again. He's saying um, to Babylon in chapters 13 and 14, to Moab, he says this stuff to, in chapters 15 and 16. 17 is towards Damascus. 18 towards this country called Cush. 19 and 20 about Egypt. 21, Babylon again. 22 talks about Jerusalem and their pride. So the Jews are not outside of this. And then in chapter 23, Tyre and Sidon, uh, two cities, they get the brunt of this. And 24, um, it's the whole world. So in case, any, in case anybody was missed, everybody's under this. And that's the, that's the trajectory of, of this judgment, that God is opposing the pride of the world. And he calls out through these chapters all of these different nations and cities, these cities of power, these places of authority. And, and ultimately, the entire world is subjected to this judgment if they are in their pride. So the main point here is that the, that the Lord has no rivals, no nation, and by implication, no individual person could stand before the sovereign Lord's judgment in their pride. See, nations are obviously a collection of people. And the point is, is that if the nations of Babylon and Moab and these powerful nations like this could not stand against the Lord in their pride, then how could any individual person do that? So we're all, this is, this is the main point, that no one can be uh, in the crosshairs of the Lord's fury and survive, except we learn about this one man who did. And we see this in the person of Jesus Christ. I think this is the main thing, is when, when you read the Old Testament and you get into these sections that are really heavy on judgment, we have to remember this. I think from, a, from the standpoint of interpreting the Bible and understanding where, where our hearts should go, we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Because when you read the judgment passages of the Old Testament, you need to remember, remind yourself that Jesus endured that judgment. That's the, that's the point, right? Like If Jesus had not come to the earth if he had not been who he was for us, then yes, all of us would endure that judgment. But Jesus endured it instead. He took upon himself all of the wrath that God had towards these nations. God in Christ absorbed that anger himself. 
This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is this one mediator, this one person who could stand between God and, and us, and his name was Jesus. That's who, uh, that, that's who he is for us. So when you, when you look at all of this harsh judgment, which is true, God has to be just to be God. Sin has to be dealt with for there to be justice. That's true. But the, the question always has to be asked, who, who's that judgment directed at? It, it could be directed at us if we stand before him in pride. It could be. But it could also, and really should be, through faith, diverted from us to Jesus himself, who took that wrath on the cross. So keep that in mind as you do read through the Old Testament. There are some hard things there, and there are some things that are not warm and fuzzy, and I I totally get that. But the point of those hard things and those challenging passages about the wrath and justice of God it's an opportunity for us to pivot to say, wow, thank, thankfully Jesus is here. Otherwise, that would be me. If it wasn't for Jesus, that's what, how God would view me and, and treat me. And I would be the brunt, receiving the brunt of that judgment if it were not for Christ. These passages should lead us to worship Jesus with joy in our hearts because we don't have to endure the wrath that God has towards sin because Jesus endured it all. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So those are the main, that's the main idea of this, this first very large chunk of, of uh, chapters, 13 through 24. But, but even, as I kind of mentioned at the beginning of this, there's, there's always, even in the Old Testament, there's always a pivoting away from judgment to show us that God has a better way and a and a a beautiful grace-filled way. And that's what starts to happen as we get into chapter 25, 25 through 27. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus stands between the nations and God's wrath. He takes that wrath for us. And, and there's all of these glorious promises laid out in Isaiah 25, 26, and 27. I'm going to just highlight one thing from each of these chapters for us today. Because again, we're talking three chapters. We can't do justice to all of them. Um, But we're going to take three beautiful promises of the gospel that we see in each of these passages. And the first is found in 25. And we'll, I'll actually, this is a fairly short chapter, so I'll read it. And I think, I think it's helpful to read this whole chapter because it's only 12 verses. And this chapter is that pivoting chapter. It's the one that turns away from judgment to the grace that God has for us. Now, in Isaiah's day, in, at his point in time, this was still going to be a future grace, a grace that would come through Jesus. But, but you'll see Jesus all over these words as we look at it through that lens. So chapter 24 deals with the judgment of the whole earth. Uh, really scary, bad stuff, right? We're, we're not filled with joy in that. But then 25 takes a turn. It says this, O Lord, you are my God. 
I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Now that's, that doesn't sound super happy, but here's, the, here's what they're trying to get across. That all the things that, that have come through sinful rebellion is now being dealt with. That's what they're trying to say. The, the, in the Old Testament, this, the idea of a city is synonymous oftentimes with, um, with pride and with sinfulness. You see that very frequently in Genesis um, when, you know, particularly Abraham and Lot and those, that whole crew, and Lot decides to go to the city and Abraham decides to go and take care of his sheep out in the, the farmland and everything goes really badly for the cities, right? Sodom and Gomorrah become this big heap of, of ruin. All this stuff is, is crazy. But so that's, that's the motif there. That's the idea that cities are, are not like this admirable thing in the Old Testament. Um, it becomes much better as you read the last couple chapters of Revelation. We know that there's a city that God has created that everyone will inhabit. And that's a great city. That's going to be the only great city that there is. Um, but so it's just simply saying that God has made this ruin, but that's a good thing. So look at verse three. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on the mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down to his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortification of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground to the dust. So again, you've got kind of these bookends of God's going to destroy what's evil in the world. And in the middle there, he's got all these beautiful truths that he's going to swallow up death forever. It's going to take care of death forever. It's going to be destroyed. That, which, is, which Isaiah beautifully picked 
pictures as this thing that's this covering, this veil that's been cast over the people, right? So all, the, all of us are living in this darkness under death and God is going to swallow that all up. He's going to destroy it all and he's going to wipe away all the tears from all the faces. He's going to br- take away the reproach of all the people. He's going to provide us with a feast to rejoice in him, this feast of full food, of aged wine. Like we can, we can be really excited about this. Um, this is good gifts from God. He's providing all of this for us. So here's the point. Um, God is redeeming the world through Jesus. And what Isaiah in 25 wants us to understand is that he is redeeming us by destroying the last enemy, which is death. And he does that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you look at chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, this is what Paul says. Um, 15, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this and in fact quotes a verse out of this, uh, this passage. Um, and, and here's what he, he writes. In uh, 15 verse uh, 54, Paul says, When the perishable, that's us, puts on the imperishable, that is the life that Christ gives to us, and the mortals put on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So there he quotes from Isaiah 25, uh, verse, uh, verse 8, that he'll swallow up death forever. We have this amazing promise that, that death will die because Jesus died and conquered death and rose again. And so we see, the, again, just this great promise. And now all of this in Isaiah is, is veiled somewhat in shadow because Jesus hadn't yet come to the earth. So Isaiah is prophesying that this will happen one day, but we know that its fulfillment has happened. Um, and we will fully experience it at the coming of the Lord um, or when we go to meet him uh, in, upon our, our physical death but we will never experience the true devastation of death as believers in Jesus. Uh, We all have lost people we love, but we all know also that if we have faith in Christ, that this earthly life we live is just momentary light affliction in the face of glory. And so we get all of that through the gospel. That's the first thing that we see, that we see that Jesus destroys death through his own death and resurrection. Second thing is in verse uh, chapter 26, rather. If you flip to the next chapter, we're going to look at um, chapter 26, particularly um, 11 and uh, 12 is, is the verses we want to hone in on here. In this chapter, uh, Isaiah's main point is that God is going to bring about peace between people and himself. He's going to bring peace. Uh, and so again, on the heels of all of this judgment that, that Isaiah has just laid out for all the nations, that's not good news unless God is going to do something to make us right with him and to reconcile us to him. And so you look at, the, um, you look at verse 3 to just kind of set up the context. He says, you keep him, that is the, the one who trusts in him, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. 
So, so the, the, the idea here, the concept that Isaiah is drawing out is that we can have peace with God as we trust him. But what's amazing is as you get down to chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 11 and 12, we actually get to see how this peace is going to be brought about. Look at what it says. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. In verse 12, here it is. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all of our works. And when I read that this week, I was just, I was floored by that statement. Lord, you have ordained peace for us because you have indeed done for us all of our works. This is absolutely astounding to hear in the Old Testament context. Because the Old Testament notoriously is do this and live, right? Be, be obedient to the law. Follow the rules. And yet right here in Isaiah, there's this amazing promise that the Lord will make peace with us because he has done for us all of our works. Man, that's crazy. So where does this happen? How do we see this fulfilled? Well, that really is what I've been trying to get across for, for years now at this church, is that that is the role that Jesus plays. See, we, we so often emphasize the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and that's good and right, we should, but we sometimes neglect the life of Christ. Jesus died and rose, but he, before any of that, he lived a perfect life. And why did he do that? So that you and I, who can't live perfect lives, could actually be given righteousness and perfection. Jesus has done all of your works for you. He has done all of it for us that we might then be brought into peace with God. Because if it was left to us, to our own devices, we would never be able to obtain peace with God. We would, we'd never be able to catch up on all the wrong things we've already done and we could never fully stop doing the bad things that we have yet to do. And so that puts us between a rock and a hard place. We are impossibly stuck if it's based on works. We can never do enough good works to tip the scales back. And we, we can never ultimately even stop doing bad things from this day forward. We're always going to slip back into sin because that's our, that's our nature. So apart from Christ and the indwelling power of the Spirit of God, we are really doomed. But the good news of the gospel is that God himself, through Jesus, has ordained peace for us because he himself has done all of our works. You know why it's so important? The, the, the passage in the New Testament that really highlights this, and I don't think it gets enough uh, attention in the right way, but it's Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. 
And what we tend to do with that passage, in fact, I, um, I, I just heard a, heard a sermon um, over Christmas time taking it in a direction that it really should not have been taken, which is typically Jesus endured temptation, so you should be able to as well. That's not the point of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4 is not a, a, a field guide for how, that, how we can endure temptation. Now, are there principles about using the word of God to combat temptation and things? That, yeah, of course, but that's not the point. The point of what Jesus did in the wilderness with the devil and being under that scrutiny and under that temptation and, and putting himself in that position of hunger is, is so that he was in his most vulnerable state and yet didn't sin. It was that moment that made Jesus, in, in a sense, he was already, already always perfect, right? But it made him tangibly in his ministry perfectly righteous for us. That's the point of that passage, is so that we can look to Jesus and go, he didn't sin, which means that because he didn't sin, his righteousness can be applied to me. It's not so much about us and what we do in the wilderness of our own temptation, though there are certainly principles we can draw, but that's not the main point. The point is, is that God has ordained peace for us because he has indeed done all of our works. See, you notice a lot in the, when you compare Genesis 3 and Matthew 4, you see the contrast. You see that Adam and Eve were tempted by that same, that same devil. And they responded as our representatives um, and, and failed. To, to, to pass the test, which plunged all of us into death, all of us into judgment, all of us into sin. And then Jesus jumps onto the scene and becomes another Adam, a second Adam. The Bible refers to him as the last Adam who, who actually did stand before the test and a much harder test because he didn't have all the trees of the garden to fulfill him as they did. Remember, they were given all the trees but one. They could be filled to the brim and they could have all of their joy met and they still sinned. Jesus endured starvation and even at the end of it still withstood the test, proving that he's the far greater Adam. And Paul talks about that in chapter 5 of Romans, but I, he also talks about it in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to go back there, I think we'll spend some good time there. Um, just, I just really want to read a couple verses at this point. Um, but 1 Corinthians 15, once again, um, this is where this is mentioned. Um, we'll start in verse um, 45 and read down to verse 49. Paul says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. 
as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as, he, just as we have borne the image of man, the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What Paul's saying is this. He's contrasting Adam and Jesus. And he's saying Adam was dust. Adam failed. Adam didn't do what he was supposed to do. Jesus is the second Adam, the last Adam, who came from heaven, who did do all that he was supposed to do. He perfectly obeyed. And he has indeed done all of our works. So that just as we all resemble Adam in some form or fashion, because we're human beings and he was a human being, so all who trust in Christ will ultimately resemble the image of Jesus. Not perfectly here, but one day we will perfectly resemble Jesus as we stand before him. We will bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the the beauty of this passage, that it shows us that we can be at peace with God, not because we pulled off some great hijinks and figured out a way to be perfect, but because we have a perfect God who did for us all of our works. What an amazing thing. This is what contrasts Christianity from virtually every other belief system in the world. True Christianity, biblical Christianity, is one that does not depend on our works to be saved. We are saved apart from works. We are saved by grace through faith. And that's not our own doing. It's the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. And so we have this amazing promise. Even in Isaiah, there's this glimmer of hope for us that yes, we aren't by nature at peace with God, but we will be through Jesus because he's done everything for us. Lastly, let's go to chapter 27. <clears throat> Last chapter we'll take a look at here. And um, this, this chapter talks about um, the, the redemption of Israel, particularly in the context of, if you remember early on before we took the Christmas break from Isaiah, um, Isaiah was warning the people that they would experience an exile from their land that they would be taken to Babylon, they'd be taken to Assyria, they'd be scattered. And this is the, the, the restoration of that. And this is, so this is kind of a dual promise. On one hand, it's promising that they will return to their own land, which they do. They do. Um, we, they do during the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. Uh, they do, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they are back and established in their land. Um, so, that's on one hand what this is dealing with, but there's also a, a, a spiritual and future fulfillment of this for the people of God. And so we see in this uh, really foreshadowing of what will one day happen when Jesus redeems all things once and for all. We see here um, in verse, tw- verse 1, it says, In the day... In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the, the twisting serpent, he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, that, sound, that might sound like Lord of the Rings for a minute, but it's, it's really a reference to the work of Satan. And Satan is referred to as a great dragon. And so here, 
we're getting this promise that he's going to destroy the work of the devil. And then in that day, in verse 2, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it, the Lord says, night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots to fill the whole world with fruit. Now that's a, that's a messianic promise. That's a reference to Jesus. It goes back to the, to the same words of Isaiah. It talks about the root of Jesse shall, there will come from that a shoot that will bear fruit. Right? It's, so it's, it's all tied in together. And here's the point that Jesus is going to uh, make in this. Is that because Christ lived and died and rose again, he's restored peace to us. He's destroyed death once and for all. But he will also re- restore everything that's been broken. We live in this awkward tension as human beings right now. We live in what theologians call the already and not yet. So on one hand, Jesus has already accomplished everything, but it hasn't yet been fully revealed and seen and experienced. So we are living in the in-between. But there will come a day when we will experience and see with our own two eyes the restoration of all things. And it's the beautiful picture that the Apostle John writes of and recounts in Revelation 20 and 21. He talks about, he picks up on this theme. Um, And really, um, chapter 20 recounts the defeat of Satan, the same thing that Isaiah just talked about in verse 1. It says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan, this, this great enemy that we have, his defeat is sure. He's going to lose the battle. But we're, we're still in this in-between. Then you get into chapter 21, and John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will be with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed 
away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This is the glorious future we have for, for those who trust in Jesus. Isaiah is writing of it. It will be one day fully seen and experienced by us. It is going to be a glorious day and we can live in anticipation of that day now. We, we can get glimmers of it here and now, but the fullness of it will be something we experience down the road. And I don't know what day that is. I don't know when that's going to happen. No one does. Anyone who says they do is lying to you. They're trying to make money from you. Don't believe it. But when Jesus comes, we will know it. And he will come. And all of this will be set right. And everything that has once been so bad will just fade away. It's like what J.R.R. Tolkien wrote um, through the words of Sam uh, in The Lord of the Rings. And, and the words are simply this, all sad things will come untrue. And, and that's, that's how it will be for us. All sad things will come untrue. They, they will pass away. They will be dealt with. The Lord will restore all things. And he's already done that. I mean, he, we have to understand it's already done. It's just not yet. We haven't caught up to it yet. Jesus has already died and rose again and conquered all things. He has already restored peace to us through Jesus. He is, he's in the process of restoring all things. And one day we will see it. We will catch up to it and we will experience it with our eyes. And we get to give God great glory for that. So with that said, let me pray for us. Uh, let me conclude with that. And we'll, we'll partake of uh, the Lord's table as well today and um, sing some songs in response to what he's done for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have done all of our works, that you have destroyed death in your death and resurrection, and that you are restoring all things. And will one day we will be there we will experience it. We will see it. We pray that the, those truths will resonate in our hearts today. And we pray that we would keep the long view. As, as the world can be so dark and so hard, we pray we'd keep the long view that you are at work, that you have not given up, and that you, are, that you have accomplished our redemption. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.